Amen. Thank you, musicians. Thank you, Kathleen, for braving through it. She didn't tell you that her voice is gone because she was yelling at my son the whole time, trying to get him to stop breaking the rules at the bowling alley. Well, it's been a tough week. I spent uh, all the way up through Wednesday and then even on Thursday focusing on my second sermon for Worldview. And then I called David on Friday, as is my custom, and said, I'm changing my sermon. David's currently trying to run off the bulletins. And then, as is my custom, I changed my mind this morning. Because I don't want to miss an opportunity to connect what I'm preaching with the real world. That would be completely negligent on my part. The whole point to this sermon series is to get the church to understand that what we believe has real life consequences. What we don't believe has real life consequences. This week I heard people say, stop praying and start doing. Stop praying. I understand where that comes from. I understand the heart that says, you're not doing anything after these things happen. We need to see something begin to change in our country. And from the left, you hear you need, you need stricter gun laws. And from the right, you, you hear you need more focus on worldview, at least more focus on life and meaning and morality in the school. And really, they're, they're probably both right. I would say one more than the other. But what we've done in this country is we have confused, we have tried to, to turn everything into an either-or. And we've lost our mind in the, con in, in, in the process of this. I have a sermon that I want to preach this morning on worldviews, but before we do that, I, I do want to begin with a, a psalm that I hope is a comfort to those of you who are <clears throat> struggling with what with the mass shooting that we saw at Stoneman Douglas this, this last Wednesday. And I want to just say to you, I want to read to you the Bible. I want to let God speak for himself. But I want to say to you that after Wednesday, some of us might be saying, where is God? And I want you to know that not only has God not died, but God has not lied to you. When we see things like that, we begin to say, well, what? What's the point about believing in God if these things happen? And I want to show you that God has not lied to us about evil and suffering in the world. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The first thing that this psalmist does is he begins to pray. So the idea that we need to stop praying is not biblical. We need to pray. Especially in times of trouble. But you need to be honest with God. You see, God won't be tricked by your words. He knows your heart. And what I love about this psalmist is his honesty. 
why are you letting this happen, God? Why do you let, why do you let wicked men have any kind of victory in this life? Why do you do that? Show him that you desire the kingdom come. Show him that you desire to see his righteousness thwart all wickedness. And this question is a very honest question. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. How many of you drive past these motels at the end of our street that are full of sexual immorality, drugs, and say, God, bring justice. Bring it to an end. Why do you let this happen? Show God that you care. Plead with him. Speak to him. Think about him. Our thoughts about God are not disconnected from the world, or at least they shouldn't be, but unfortunately, they are. We see this as our duty as believers, and then we leave, and we don't see the connection between this one hour and the rest of our lives. And the psalmist says, why do you let this happen? Let them be caught in their schemes. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The person curses God, he does not believe in God. Least he says he does not believe in God. In fact, we're going to see just a couple verses down that this is not so much the disbelief in God as it is the rejection of him. His ways prosper at all times, speaking of the wicked. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. For as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. I mean, did you see this boy as they were checking in this 18 or 19-year-old boy into the, into the, the county uh, jail? Did you see his face? Blank. Shark eyes. People say, oh, mental disability. Listen to me. Listen to me. People had mental disability for the entire history of the world. But our country has decided to facilitate that with atheism and secularism. And to say you should think this way. And there was a blank stare as they checked that boy in. No weeping. No connection with what he did. 17 people dead, 14 others shot, clinging to their, fighting for life. And he sees no remorse in it. And the psalmist asks, why do they say in their heart they shall not be moved? Throughout all generations I shall not meet adversity, says the wicked. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, literally in hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He's describing an animal. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. This is an animal, not a human being. An animal devours its prey. And we don't say that it's murdered a zebra. We say it's killed a zebra. And nobody goes and shames the lion for killing the zebra. That's what lions do. 
They kill zebras. And it's bloody. And it's cold-blooded. It's heartless. There's no thought in it. There's no remorse. Just a red mouth full of blood and vacant expression. And when human beings do the same, we are de-evolving. But you can't get rid of God from society and there not be consequences. Someone will say to me, well, not all atheists are killers. And I'll say, yes, you're right. But all atheists have no reason for not being killers. Because there is no ought without God. He says then, finally, he seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. This person begins his lament with honesty of his heart. What I want to encourage you to do this week is I want you, in your confusion, in your sadness, in your sorrow, I want you to be honest with God. God allows that. God permits us to talk to him honestly. It's when you stop talking to him that you have problems and that you lose your faith. So I want to encourage you in this week and in this time to think about how you can pray to God in all honesty. But I want to go back to our sermon series, and if you will, just allow me, even if it's done clumsily, to connect the two. Basic Christianity is about having a Christian worldview. I want to define worldview again, and then today I want to explain how this worldview eventually leads to glory. But there's a process. Here's how Alan Carnes, a, a Presbyterian pastor, defines worldview. He says, the worldview is the philosophical and theological spectacles through which we view the world and all reality. It is the framework within which we interpret the data of the world and life. It's the second part of the definition I want to focus on. It is, a worldview is the framework within which we interpret the data of the world and life. One of the very crafty tools of Satan in this day and age is to give you so much data that you, can't, you don't know what to do with it when you get it. Most of the problem that we deal with in, in our day-to-day -day is that we've been given so much data and we don't understand how to think about it or to process it when we get it. And, and now Satan has so craftily given us a vehicle through which we can share our anger and our responses with the entire world. And what we see day in and day out is more and more stupidity and more and more people embracing that stupidity. Ignorance. This past week, Johan was telling me about a woman who posted, a very apparently an intellectual woman, who had posted online that there was no, that, that his was her statement. Nobody in the Bible ever existed. No one in the Bible ever existed because we didn't have their bodies. 
that's laughable. But the amount of people that were responding to it and trying to respond to it, responding to it, A, with a thumbs up, and others who responded to it with a thumbs down, those who responded to a thumbs up, and those who responded to it with a thumbs down were equally vacant in any kind of meaning. And it was a hodgepodge of stupidity. And it leads to more anger. It leads to more argument. And Christians, what I'm telling you this morning is that you cannot contribute to this kind of intellectual abandonment. I want to read to you a statement made by two Christian thinkers, William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland. They say, it is not just the scholars and the ministers who benefit from training in philosophy. It is the lay people who need to be intellectually engaged if our culture is to be effectively reformed. Lay people, you. Listen to me, when you come to Christianity, when you come to faith in Christ, God does not say, okay, who wants to be intellectual? Okay, you come over here. Who wants to not think about their faith? Okay, you come over here. All of us are to think about our faith and to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Our churches are unfortunately overly populated with people whose minds as Christians are going to waste. As Malik observed, they may be spiritually regenerate, but their minds have not been converted. They still think like non-believers. Despite their Christian commitment, they remain largely empty selves. What is an empty self? An empty self is a person who is passive, sensate, busy and hurried, incapable of developing an interior life. Such a person is inordinately individualistic, infantile, and narcissistic. Imagine now a church filled with such people. What will be the theological understanding? Where will there be evangelistic courage? The cultural penetration of such a church. If the interior life does not really matter all that much, why should one spend the time trying to develop an intellectual, spiritually mature life? If someone is basically passive, he will just not make the effort to read, preferring instead to be entertained. If a person is sensate in orientation, then music... Magazines filled with pictures and visual media in general will be more important than mere words on a page or abstract thoughts. If one is hurried and distracted, one will have little patience for theoretical knowledge and too short an attention span to stay with an idea while it is being carefully developed. Let me tell you, one of the best things that I've done recently, I have left my computer at home. I have an entire library on my computer, but I have left it at home because I cannot engage in thoughts while I am being distracted with screens. I'm not anti-bringing your iPad to church or anti-bringing your phone to church, but if you can't focus on the thought, you got a problem. If you can't think through for five minutes without losing your attention span, you've got a problem. Books about Christian celebrities, Christian romance, if a person reads it all, imitating the worst that the world has to offer, 
Christian self-help books and filled with slogans, simplistic moralizing, lots of stories and pictures, and inadequate diagnoses of the problems will face those who are individualistic and infantile. Excuse me, infantile. What will not be read are books that equip people to develop a well-reasoned theological understanding of the Christian faith and to assume their role in the broader work of the kingdom of God. Such a church will become impotent. That means they have no impact. None. They're impotent. They come to church, but they're no power. There's no movement. There's no impact in the community. Such a church will be impotent to stand against the powerful forces of secularism. That is the belief that there is no God and that God should have no role in our decision making as a country. That threatened the church and threatened to wash away Christian ideas in a flood of thoughtless pluralism and misguided scientism, such a church will be tempted to measure her success largely in terms of numbers, numbers achieved by cultural accommodation to empty selves. In other words, he's saying, you want to grow a church with numbers, you got to culturally accommodate. You can't tell truth because that offends in this way, the church will become her own grave digger, for her means of short-term success will turn out in the long run to be the very thing that buries her. What makes this envisioned scenario so distressing is that we do not have to imagine such a church. Rather, this is an apt description of far too many American evangelical churches today. It is no wonder, then, that despite its resurgence, Evangelical Christianity has been thus far so limited in its cultural impact. Are you impressed when you hear that 80% somewhere along that number claim to believe in God, 80 to 90% of Americans? Does that impress you? Or that the vast majority of Americans are still Christian? If that is true, why doesn't this country look differently? Because they haven't made a connection between their faith and their worldview. And this has led, as I pointed out last week, to great consequences. Cultural irrelevance. Loss of morality. Anti-intellectualism. Producing atheist. Sin and heresy are permeating the church and eventually we have an insecure, shallow faith. But this morning, I want to explain why our worldview matters. And here's my proposition. If we think like God thinks, then we will live like God lives. In fact, what I'm saying is a little bit more reduced, or is a little bit smaller, is a little bit more specific I am saying that thinking like God thinks is the only way to live like God lives. I want to talk to you this morning about how our worldview works. Some have asked me, what, 
what would you use? How can you describe our worldview? What is our worldview? Our worldview as Christians has to begin with a source. There has to be a foundation, an authority, someone who is our intellectual parent. And it cannot come from you. You cannot be the source of truth. We have to be able to rest all of our beliefs in the truth, in a source that is outside of us. And so a Christian worldview is fundamentally biblically based. Alan Carnes again says, a Christian worldview uses the biblical revelation as the foundation for a proper understanding of the nature and purpose of our existence. The Bible answers the major questions of life. Is there or is there not a God? What is it to be a man or human being? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What is the virtuous life? What is right? What is wrong? What is morality and where is it grounded? Many of us haven't thought much about why we should be moral. Most of the time our ethic is karma. Well, I'll do good so that I'll get good back to me. Jesus was perfect and he was crucified on a cross as a criminal at 33. So the law of karma is not the biblical law. Jesus made it very clear, if you're going to be my follower, be ready to be persecuted. But the Bible must ground all of our thinking. If we're going to be adults, and if we're going to be Christians, and we're going to navigate this world correctly, our understanding of theology, creation, ethics, religion, politics, social issues, history, psychology, economics, all has to be grounded in the Bible. You want to know why there's so many denominations? Because what we think about these things aren't grounded here. You want to know why people don't understand how their sex life is connected with their religious life? It's because it's not grounded here. It's because this little word ethics is seen as somewhere over here, but not relevant to being a Christian. Because we think that the only thing that matters is what we believe with our brain. And what we think in our brain, and it doesn't matter how we live. But the Bible is the foundation of all that we think. People who call themselves Christian are constantly defining God on their own terms. But don't you understand that God defines himself? When Moses asked the question, essentially, who is God? God gave an answer. I believe God is a force. I believe I'm a good person. And I believe God is going to reward me for my good. I don't believe that God, I don't believe, people tell me, I don't believe in a God that can send people to hell. I don't believe in a God who would have people grow up in one culture and not know his son and that those people would die and go to hell. I, I don't like that part. But God defines himself. 
And he says, I am, listen, what's his name? I am who I am. I love the way that that Jewish, that Hebrew word, that that Hebrew phrase is translated into English. Because it's so important for us today to realize that if you're going to take God, you're going to take him as he is. And not on your terms, but on his So what we believe in God is defined by God in his word. What we believe about creation is defined in his word. Ethics is defined in his word. Religion is defined in his word. Politics is defined in his word. Christian, we choose one party over the other because that's what our family or our culture tells us to. But God tells us to choose based upon a set of principles. And by the way, those principles have a hierarchy. Life is always the highest. Always. Human life is always chief. Because human life is created in the image of God. It has something to say about our social issues, about racism. It has something to say about history and psychology and economics. But our Christian worldview, our mind, must be grounded in Scripture. And for each one of these particular thoughts, we have to be able to break those thoughts down. There are statements, those are true or false statements about God in His Word. And we have to correct our false thoughts by what God has given us are his true thoughts. This is just a couple. Number one, God exists as one God in three persons. No, God is not the God of Islam. Do you understand? People say this, and I hear Christians say this all the time, that God, that that Allah is just another name for the God of the Bible. Listen to me, it is not They are talking about radically different gods. You haven't read either the Bible or the Quran if you think they're the same. Well, they can we all just get along? No. In fact, the Quran tells us that it is a capital crime to claim or to add persons to one God. Capital, that means... It's worthy of death. But the Bible tells us that there's one God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That everything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus insofar as their deity is concerned. And everything you can say about the Father and the Son, you can say about the Holy Spirit as far as their deity is concerned. God reveals to us that he is sovereign, ruler over all things from the greatest to the least. That means that this past week, this event that destroyed so many lives, we have to understand that within the means or within a world where God controls it and tells us that he uses it for his good and glory. Think about the story of Joseph for just a moment. Sold into slavery, beaten, lied about, put in prison, And then his brothers sit before him, 
bowing down. And then when it's revealed to them that Joseph is now high up in the, in the king's palace and second in command over all of Egypt, he says to him in Genesis 50, 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. How, how, how do you begin thinking about last Wednesday's mass shooting at Stoneman? Stoneman, uh, uh, good, what is it, Stoneman Douglas? You think about it like this. What was meant for evil, God means for good. And I don't know how he's going to do that. God is in control of everything from the greatest to the least. There's not one single cancer cell in your body that God is not in control of. You say, is that what scripture tells us? Read it. The lot is class, but it's every fall is in the hands of the Lord. Not only do I bring good, says God, I bring calamity. You say, I don't like that God. Sorry then, you don't follow the God of Scripture. Because a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview is based in the Bible. And not our feelings. But theology tells us that God's greatest concern is sin and righteousness and holiness. That's his greatest concern. It's not what type of job you get. I hear parents tell their kids, Christian parents, go ahead and live together before you get married. You guys aren't ready to get married and you're not ready to settle down. You guys should live together. You guys should, you know, find out whether or not that's the person you want to live your life. Because once you're married, you're married forever, which is not true, by the way. No-fault divorce laws have made it very easily to divorce. But go ahead and, and don't get married just yet. You're not ready. You're young. Experiment. And do you know that God cares more about their holiness than what job or career they have? Parent, your wisdom is worldly wisdom when you tell that child to live with their, to cohabitate with their, not their spouse, but with someone and to wait until they get their career to get married. Guess what they're doing? Having sex. No, not my son. Yeah, your son. Yeah, your daughter. They like sex too. No, they need to get their career first. So let them live together and find out whether or not that's the right person for them. God cares more about holiness he says you walk by faith. What if you're sexually incompatible? By faith. What if you get injured and you can't have sex for the rest of your life? By faith. God cares about holiness first. He doesn't care about your career. Oh, I got to work on Sundays. Do you? Some do. Some have essential they, they have things that, like, like nurses and police officers, we understand that. But for the majority of us, do you have to work on Sunday? Do you have to work on Wednesday? Well, I have to. My father used to say, son, the first thing you need to tell your employer before you get the job is I can't work on these days. I can't. You know... The Muslim, 
He makes that commitment. He's going to pray five times a day. And if that conflicts with his work schedule, so be it. And nobody says boo about it. And yet Christians so quickly give up their day of worship to the true God. Why? Because we've created God in our own image. Because our worldview is not based on the Bible. Our worldview is based in our minds. What we have allowed God to excuse in our life. Which he doesn't. So our Bible is what governs all of our thoughts. But not only does it govern all of our thoughts. It gives understanding to all of these thoughts. And puts them in agreement. This analysis of each and every one of these worldviews, theology and creation and ethics and religion and politics and political issues and history and psychology and economics and whatever else you can think about. Together, as God has defined it in his word, can be called a Christian worldview. How do you view everything? Nothing, nothing in this world Nothing, not a view, not an opinion, is free from God's sovereign control. Nothing. This is collectively our Christian worldview. But this Christian worldview and how we view politics and creation and economics and ethics and history, religion and psychology and theology and social issues must be grounded in the Bible. And because it's grounded in the Bible must be true. And if it's true, it also has to be coherent. What do I mean by truth? What is truth? Truth is what corresponds to reality. It's what's out there. It's what's real. If it's not there, it's not real. But coherence says, not only does what is out there must be true, it must be in agreement. It cannot contradict itself. The Bible is God's truth. Which is another way of saying the truth. That is true for not just Christians, but for your non-believing uncle. For people who've never heard of the Bible. For people who lived in the past, for people who live today, for people who will live in the future. God's word is truth. It is without contradiction. And when we rightly understand what God's word teaches us about all of these things, excuse me, about all of these things, it shapes how we view the entire world. How we view everything. Our politics has to be connected with our creation. What do we believe about creation? Do we believe that God created the world? Or do we believe that the world is accidental? Do you know that if we believe that the world was an accident, that it is simply time plus chance plus matter gave us everything, that there is a political worldview you should have about law? It's called positivism. Positivism simply states that whatever the government says is good and is right, that's okay. Do you know that many mothers make this decision? Christian mothers make their decision to abort babies based upon an understanding of law as what the government tells me is right or wrong? 
The government says it's okay, therefore it's okay. And yet these people claim to be Christian and don't understand how their political view of abortion is connected to the word of God. If God didn't create the world, then law has to come from the state. This was a famous problem. After the wall fell, there was a set of trials called the Nuremberg Trials, the wall that separated communist Germany from democratic Germany. And those who were seen escaping over the wall from the communist side from uh, East Germany were to be shot. It was required by the border guards. If they saw someone going over that wall, they were to shoot them dead. Well, guess what? The wall was torn down. Germany became one state, and you had a bunch of border guards who had blood of innocent people on their hands. Now, what do you do? What do you do with them? How do you judge them? It was law. They were required by law to shoot people. But someone says over here, but don't you understand that shooting people's not right? Says who? Who says? Nature? Nature doesn't tell me that. I watch planet, uh, Animal Planet. I've seen how other animals, since we're nothing more than higher evolved animals, I've seen how other animals devour other animals. Why should I not shoot someone going over the wall? Eventually, those men were tried for crimes against humanity. But, of course, you have to answer the question, where are crimes against humanity found? Where is this law? Where? Where? Oh, oh Where? In your gut? It's not in your gut. That's never a good place to judge right and wrong. See slavery. See the Holocaust. Oh, the word of God. Oh, how convenient. Since you don't believe there is one. Where is law found? And so it is, I want you to see, everything you believe about these views has some greater implication down the road. The government doesn't make law. God makes law. Do you know that the civil rights movement was not simply a movement of active people, but it was movement of an active people in the right direction? Their leader knew the natural law and wrote one of the greatest treaties on natural law ever written, letters from Birmingham jail. Based upon the belief that an unjust law is no law at all. How can he say that? He is begging the question, where is justice? Because someone believes it's in the state, another person believes it's in God. But he knew what we knew. And what we're trying to escape, and that is that God's law is the foundation of all law. But it connects to how we view reality and what we do in the voting booth and what we do with our unwanted children. What we think about minds today. What we think about our social issues. 
They all must connect back to the word of God if we're going to view the world correctly. And they cannot be in contradiction. Let me make it more practical. What do we believe about marriage? Well, two people love each other. Who cares if they're man and man? Who cares if they're woman and woman? Who cares if it's man and woman and woman and woman and woman? I would, by the way. Oh my gosh. Those guys, if you know that there's a false religion, for sure it's Mormonism. Anybody who would want to have four wives is crazy. I don't know what to do with the one that I have. Stop clenching your fist. What do you do with marriage? Why not? They have love. When someone says to you, they love each other, the basis, therefore, for them of marriage is love. But that's not the basis for marriage for us. The basis for marriage is that God created them in his image, male and female. And the two will become one flesh. Not the three. Not the five. But the two. The male and female. You used to be able to figure out gender by simply going, man, woman, woman, man. But now we don't know. What's more reasonable, 40 and 50 genders or a book that clearly sees what God made? But our view of marriage and what is right marriage, not in just our institution of man and woman, also has to lead to what we do in our functioning marriages. How does feminism handle Ephesians 5, 23? Women submit to your, wives submit to your husbands. You say, no, I'm out. I just lost all the women. They're done. I was with you on everything until you said, submit to my husband. God can't be serious on that one. Why not? He is the creator, isn't he? You believe he created the heavens and the earth, don't you? Well, if he tells you to submit to your husband, why would you doubt him there? Well, my husband's a jerk. Should have thought about that. God didn't say, wives, submit to your husband unless he's lazy. Because guess what? You married a sinful man. All of you. Men. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives. How? The way Christ loved the church. So that means it's your job to serve your wife. Now, I hear all the ladies, mm-hmm, you hear, mm-hmm. Didn't you hear it sound like a, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't hear nothing on the first one. It has something to say about our marriage, what we believe about the Bible, and what we believe about our, but, but, but notice then it, it, it also connects to our politics. It also connects to how do I vote Come the next voting cycle because I believe it is very important to maintain the family unit and to define marriage as between one woman and one man. 
Everybody who was up in arms about the last presidential race, about how people were voting, understood. Many were, were saying that Christians just blindly vote. And I'm telling you, they, some do, but a lot of them don't. They made connections based on a worldview. What about mass shootings? Where does that come from? What do we do when we go and we find out on their Facebook page that it's full of atheistic teaching, full of atheistic slogans? Terrorism, racism, sexuality, gender. Should you protect, should you be working in yoga? Should you be doing yoga? God doesn't care how I stretch. No, he doesn't. But he does care when you start to connect that stretching with false beliefs. He does. What about karate? Oh, God doesn't care about that. Absolutely he does when you connect it with false beliefs. You want to stretch? You can do downward dog, upward elephant. You can do them all. God doesn't care when you're stretching. But when you start to, listen to me, leave the mind behind, that's not Christian. The Bible has something to say about all of these. So I want you to see that it comes from the word of God that should be shaping all of Christians' minds, all of our minds. All of these should be coherent. All of them are interrelated. And then ultimately, our right thinking leads to our right behavior. Right thinking has to end in right behavior. People say to me all the time, why aren't you teaching more about marriage? Or why aren't you teaching more about economics? How are we supposed to handle our pocketbook? Number one, because I'm, I'm not Oprah. That's number one. Or Dr. Phil. I'm your pastor. My job is to show you how everything that you do is governed by the word of God. If you leave feeling bad about this sermon, sorry. Come back next week. You might feel worse. My goal is not to tell you what's going to make you feel better. It's to give you the truth. And you have to make the decision what you're going to do with it. But right thinking leads to right behavior. Our worldviews matter. What you think about God leads to how you live your life. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you have your Bibles, turn in them quickly. you got to beat me there. I'm there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What are those mercies of God? Listen to me, because I know this book very well. The mercies of God is every doctrinal point that the Apostle Paul has made from chapters 1 to 11. Someone said, you believe, someone asked uh, Johan the other day, you believe there was a real Adam? Absolutely, Romans 5 tells me that that's the only explanation for sin. Paul says, I appeal to you by doctrine, by the truth of doctrine, to do what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means you give your whole life to God. Young people, up there in the balcony, you're not going to escape me. God cares what you do with your bodies more than anything. 
God cares what you do with your mind. God cares what you do with your hands and where you go with your feet and what you look at with your eyes. I appeal to you, said Paul, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The world is telling you, young people, that you are to live to yourself, but God's word says, live for me. Give your life to me. Your life is not your own. It has been bought with a price. But what if that's not what I want to do? God has not made you the way he has made you to waste your talents and gifts. He has made you the way he has made you to use you for his glory. That is the only life worth living. If you cure cancer, you have only given sinners more time on this earth to sin. Unless you do it for his glory. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I love that word. Because today we use the word worship. Oh, people tell me, I don't feel the worship in your church. I didn't feel it this morning. With the, listen to me, worship is how you live when you leave here. Worship is, worship is when you go home to the man who's not your husband. Worship, dads, is when you love your children the way God wants you to love them. That's worship. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your spirit. No. By the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right thinking leads to right behavior. Not only in the big things, but in the small things too. Paul says, even if it's in eating and drinking, do whatever to the glory of God. Even in the minutia. Everything for God's glory. Some of you are saying, you are describing the Christian life I can't live. Well, that's the Christian life. And there aren't options. That is the Christian life. By faith, Abraham took his son to a mountaintop to sacrifice him. Can you imagine? We think that Abraham was skipping along. Don't you know that Abraham would have had the same gut feeling and the same sorrow and sadness and concern and worry you would have had had God told you to take your child to the mountaintop? But by faith, he went. And by faith, God provided a lamb. God doesn't sacrifice your children. He sacrificed his. He is a God you should be giving your life to. He has given his for you. It matters what you believe. Comes out, as the old English saying goes, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. 
And if you really believe what you say you believe, if you understand the word of God correctly, if your worldview is in the right shape, you can be effective. You can be sure that you belong to God. I want to leave you with our verse from last year and what it says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. Let me put that in simple terms. Christian, you can do this. That's what it means. Christian, you say you're not a thinker. You don't like to read books. You don't like to read the Bible. You don't have time. The Bible tells us God has given you everything you need to begin to worship God with your minds. Everything. And he expects us to do this. For this very reason, since God has told you today, each and every one of you, no excuse, none of you can leave here today with an excuse that this is not for you. Because the Bible tells us, you have no excuse, God has given it. And for this very reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. You say you believe, how are you living? Supplement your virtue with knowledge. Why are you living that way? Know why you live that way. And your knowledge was self-control. And self-control was steadfastness. You're not going to be swayed when you hear the next fad. Steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, remember the quote that I read to you from William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they keep you from being an impotent church. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your worldview should produce Christian behavior. Christian worldview, if it's real, will produce Christian behavior. And Christian behavior will produce glory. You can't have it any other way. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. You have empowered us with the ability to take your word, to rightly divide the word of truth, to understand your word. You have given us many opportunities. Dare I say, you have given us a freedom like no other nation to understand your word. You have given us the ability through the educational process and system that we have had. You have given us nothing but time. None of us work our fields. And yet, Lord... 
We labor in vain if we do not cultivate our minds for you. Lord, I pray that this church will not be impotent. I pray that every person who is in earshot of my voice today will hear you speaking. Take away all prejudices they may have about me personally, whatever it may be. Let them hear your voice today. What you desire, Lord, is for your people to reflect your glory. And it is only in that sense that we will ever inherit your glory. In this way, your word tells us you have provided richly for us eternal life in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that Christians in this country will begin to cultivate their mind so that they will be effective and fruitful in their neighborhoods, in their families, in our country, and in this world. This is my prayer. Amen.